Welcome to Searching the Sacred. I'm Jason Steffenhagen. I'm Steph Spencer. And I'm Lisa Adams. We are hosting conversations about scripture for the curious, doubters, and hope seekers. We're inviting people to ask different questions, questions asked by those who have been wounded and hurt, questions asked by those who have deconstructed and are looking for a reconstruction. We're creating space for love, kindness, justice, and curiosity. We will wrestle, we will question, we will dance, we will dream, we will wonder, we will be frustrated, and we will hope. We aren't searching for singular answers or solutions. We are searching the sacred. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to Searching the Sacred. This is Jason, Lisa, and Steph with you. For all of you that are listening for the first time, we want to say welcome to this very nerdy podcast where we talk about the Hebrew scriptures and the Bible, and we dive in, and we wrestle with it, we tangle it, we untangle it, and we see what comes out on the other side. And today is going to be just like any other day, where we're going to start with a reading and then asking some questions. And as is our tradition, Lisa is going to be reading today. So Lisa, take it away. We're going to be reading from 2 Kings chapter 22. Uh, I'm going to start in verse 10. I did not prep at all, so pronunciation shall be fun. Then Shaphan the scribe showed the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. Now it happened when the king heard the words of the book of the law that he tore his clothes. Then the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, Arkbor, the son of Micaiah, Shaphan the scribe, and Asiah, the servant of the king, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me, for the people and for all of Judah, concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is aroused against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. So Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, Arkbor, Shaphan, and Asiah went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikva, the son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. She dwelt in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they spoke with her. Hey, good job with all those names. <laughs> a lot of them. Not easy on a Monday morning, but well done. <laughs> well, and it strikes me that probably for many people, either they don't know any of those names, or most of us only know the name Josiah. Which she didn't even read, so that yeah. wasn't there. <laughs> The easy one oh, wasn't in there. <laughs> the easy one wasn't. That's funny. Um, so yeah, so in 2 Kings 22, we are in the time period of Josiah the king, which is a name people tend to know. But here's all these other people surrounding Josiah that most of us haven't heard of or talked about. That And I don't know, that sort of leads to a first question of why is that? Why are all of the headings in my Bible about Josiah, even though there are other people in the narrative? That's how it works in the monarchy, right? The the person who matters is the one in, one in charge. Welcome to patriarchy. <laughs> so the part of the story that many of us know is sort of what's happened in in starting back in verse one, which is that Josiah is eight years old when he begins to reign. 
he does what's right in the sight of the Lord, which isn't always true of the kings of that time period. In his uh, in the 18th year of his reign, so he's 26 then, um, is when this is happening. And he sends a scribe to the book of the Lord and he asks, or to the house of the Lord, to so the temple, and says, "Would go clean it up. See what's there. And when they clean up the temple to see what's there, they're actually looking for silver and they find the scroll of the book of the law. And I feel like that's a nice place to start is what is the state of things? If the king sends the priest and the scribe to go to the temple and they are surprised to find the book of the law, in other words, the Torah. And when the king hears it, he rips his clothes because the king has never heard it before. Well, not only does he tear his clothes, he's never heard it before, but he recognizes the severity of the situation they're in, which I think is actually really fascinating and would love to hear what y'all think about this. Like kind of, I don't think there is like an answer. I just wonder what you think about it. If they haven't been there for so long that they're just there to kind of pillage the place for silver to melt it down for whatever reason, and then they find this ancient book that they've not been following, how is it so instantly meaningful to him that he would tear his clothes and say, like, we got to change everything? Like, it seems almost instantaneous that he hears this and, like, everything just shifts in that moment. I think that feels like partly the um like the dance of our history being a verbal history and why like writing something down like the way that we want proof of things and in proof we mean so we want to have something tangible something we can touch and so i wonder obviously we're hearing about holda like we're hearing about a prophet there's some there are there are people somewhere that have a memory hmm. or have a something that they're sharing and walking through but maybe for everybody like maybe it's a little bit like oh, yeah that's that story yeah maybe that's true yeah maybe like how things can change so subtly in oral history mm. like it just takes a little bit of time and then it's probably a little bit more of a question mark but, and you can swing at both. The pendulum swings both ways. Sometimes then we have too much weight on the proof of things. They're like, this is what it said. That's that. That's that. Hmm. And like, perhaps there's like how oral traditions gets a little too wishy-washy. And I don't know, like, it feels like we're in this really interesting space of like, they have swung their pendulum so far this way. So like, ignore. They must be ignoring a lot of things in there. For him to rend his clothes and know like things are not okay. Well, especially if he's sending if he's sending people to go look for silver when they find it, as a king, why would he want silver and gold? Solve a problem. So most likely he's sending them to go find silver and gold to make allegiances with other political powers. In order to not be taken over. So a bunch of things have gotten lost. People are scared. And remind me, this is after the northern ten tribes have been conquered by Assyria, right? So 
they've right is that correct or not yes so so this is the northern 10 tribes have already been conquered by assyria and the bab and assyria has now been taken over by babylon and the babylonian empire is is getting close to taking over judah so it's two tribes left in the south it's the the south is where jerusalem is so it's where the temple is um, and, and they're kind of trying to hang on for dear life as they not only have the Babylonians coming, but they have, there's other kingdoms around them. There are smaller kingdoms. There's the Phoenicians that might come in from Turkey in the North. There's the Egyptians that might come in from the South. There's smaller kingdoms like the Edomites. Like they're not, they're just this little teeny Island right now. They're scared. Um, a lot has been lost. And this is a story of revival in the midst of all of the things that have been lost. But we know like from the sort of if you follow all of the um, the boring um, begets and, you know, the 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 lineages that are in the book of Kings, we can we can place this around. This story is around 622 B.C. because it's the 18th year of Josiah's reign. And we kind of know when Josiah was reigning and the Judah is going to fall to Babylon, the temple is going to be destroyed in 586. So we're within a we're within a lifespan of the temple falling. And the first exile to Babylon happens in 605. So we're really only like 15 years out from the first exile beginning. Um so we're we're that's it's like they're kind of breathing down the neck. Yeah. And it probably feels I mean 40 years is still a lifetime. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, it makes me wonder about, I mean, I think, I think of the, if they're raiding the temple for silver, I don't know if raiding is a correct word. If they're going to the temple and looking for silver, it means it's probably not sitting there, which means nobody's really using the temple. And in my head, it's always been like the temple was just this amazing structure for forever, forever, and then suddenly demolished. Not, I don't always think of it in terms of like, oh, it's kind of actually been neglected. They can't even find their stuff in it. Yeah. What's actually happening inside of there if they can't find anything? Right. And and even, and it does, and I, I misspoke about Josiah because he's being framed at least as such a good king is sending the people to look he's sending them to look for the silver. And then in verse five, it says that to give it to the doers of the work to repair the temple of the Lord. So he is wanting to repair the house okay. um, and use that money to repair the house. But that's been different. His predecessors have looked, has have raided the temple for silver and gold to make alliances. That's why it's in disrepair. And so mm-hmm. you're exactly right, Lisa. Like when we get to this part of the story, yes, the Babylonians are going to destroy the temple, but it's sort of already been destroyed from the inside as kings have raided the temple to protect the land and to protect their reign. And in the midst of that way of doing things have lost the Torah. And now the Torah is found as the house of the Lord is being repaired. They find the Torah. So if you were a really cheesy pastor, like I am, could you make the uh, very quick pastoral point of saying the inner turmoil and devastation is followed by the outer turmoil and devastation. (laughs) (laughs) You could probably try to do that. You could probably try to do that. Well, it becomes the, 
it, it may be, I don't know if it helps when we get to the words of Hulda, which hopefully we'll get to, um, the word God can sound harsh. And there's ways that we need to reconcile with how God does things. And there are uneasy, there aren't easy answers to difficult things that happen. And sometimes it's a trajectory we start. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's random. Sometimes it's just evil. Sometimes it's just bad. But it's part of the wrestle is to say, when is it actually something that we started that God entered into as compared to something God just dropped on us? Mm. And in the case of this particular circumstance in Judah, they are on a trajectory that where God sending Babylon isn't just him dropping it on them. There is a thing that they've been complicit in. They've been a part of not just in raiding the temple, but part of what got them the whole land on this trajectory of being taken over is that they became a place of oppressors and oppressed. They became a place where that was, that was using wealth to have haves and have nots that was not caring for the poor and the widow and the incarcerated and all of the things that God told them to do. That's not how the land was running. And so there is a way that this is we can see the path they were on and that though there are glimmers of hope like this moment where Josiah is cleaning up the temple, where there's a prophetess that they can consult, all of those things are happening. That's a glimmer of hope in the midst of a pretty bad trajectory that's been going on for a long time. It's right. interesting. I'm having a hard time thinking about an eight-year-old becoming king. <clears throat> like there's not like that feels really like he's 26. <laughs> Like his brain is just done uh, forming. And so like, it makes me wonder about the people who he's surrounded by. Right. Like, and it's interesting that we, like, we do know the name Josiah, but we don't know the names of the people who are actually probably really formational and like how as an eight-year-old, you're not making really great kingdom decisions. I would imagine. I just can't imagine <laughs> what that looks like. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it makes me curious who's who's around Josiah. Well, let's look at that. When we go up to verse one, which you didn't read, the first person we are told that's around Josiah in verse one is who? His mom. His mother, Jedidah. Jedidah. And, and that name becomes important because we know that Josiah's dad was a bad king. Like we're told about that the chapter before. So if Josiah comes on the scene and is not acting like his dad, we should wonder where's the goodness coming from. And the first person we're told about is his mom. Um, and Jedidah means beloved. Mm. Um, and it's the closest that we have had to the name Yedadiah, which is a, it's an, it's a beloved of the Lord. It's close to the name beloved of the Lord. So her name just means beloved. It's close to the name beloved of the Lord. And we might wonder back to Lisa's thing about oral history, what kind of oral history were the women keeping alive mm -hmm. as the patriarchy was burying the scroll? And how yeah. did that influence Josiah's reign? And Jedidah is the daughter of a Adaya or Adaya, mm -hmm. am I right in thinking that Adaya is also a feminine name in Hebrew? So it would be not only are we getting mom, but we're getting grandma as well. Um, you know, it actually looks like it might be her dad. Okay. 
Um, but her, but her dad's name means Yah, short for that name of God or Jehovah has, has adorned himself. And so we have this, we have these names that are, or has passed on, has gone, has, um, I don't know why it's adorned there, advanced. And so we have, it seems like in the maternal line, we have a story of God that has not been lost. And that is a part of what is being given to Josiah, whose name means um, Yah heals. Mm. And so we have a king who's born, who's a healer, born as the daughter or as the son of a woman named Beloved. Whose father carries the name of Yah. There's something being passed on around Josiah. Hilkiah is the high priest that we named. His name means my portion is Yah, um, which can be like portion, meaning like parcel of land or inheritance that like God is my inheritance. So it's somebody's name that means this isn't just about power. <laughs> my inheritance, it's a name that would sort of mean God is enough. Mm, it's a nice name for a high priest. Just a good name for a high priest. Well, especially when like not all high priests are sacrificially serving the people. Some of them are leading the people to other paths that are unhealthy. And so for this one to to not have maybe power be the ultimate goal, that's a really beautiful expression of the priesthood. Shafan's name comes from a verb that means to cover or hide. Um, and he's the scribe, which is interesting since the book of the law had been hidden. His name means uh, to cover over, but it can also mean to treasure. Like that sort of concealing can be positive or negative. So those are the main people involved until we reach Hulda. Hulda's name, um, unfortunately or unfortunately, I don't know. Uh, Hulda's name means weasel. That's it. There's no like there's no alternative <laughs> translation of that one. Um so it comes from a verb khaled which means uh to guide to glide swiftly. So when when you think about every Hebrew word has a verb at the root. So the verb at the root of animal names often has to do with their movements and how they move. So the name I think we talked about this in a previous podcast the name for lamb is uh is about the hopping that a lamb does. That's the verb that it comes from. And so chaled is the word at the root of, of weasel, which means to glide swiftly. So, yeah, I mean, maybe we pause on that. What is Hulda's name means to glide swiftly like a weasel. What do we make of that? Well, I think it's easy for our culture to be like weasels are bad because all the depictions that we have in like cartoons or like modern society is that like, don't be a weasel. Like, don't try to get something that you shouldn't, or like, don't weasel out of the trouble that you're in by putting the blame on somebody else. Like, we that quick movement away from the trouble we often see as like, you know, scapegoating something else, or like an escape hatch, or just not following through on what you said you were going to. And it's always negative, negative, negative. But that's just our culture taking that word and ascribing meaning to it. I don't know what the ancient world would have ascribed to a weasel with quick movements 
maybe it wasn't negative. Maybe it was courageous and bold, or maybe it was necessary for life, you know, to survive. So maybe it's like honored. I don't know. Well, so the verb, the verb that is about this is also used in like in the Psalms for about how short time is, Mm. how time passes in a swift state. Um, so that's used that way in verse in Psalm 89, verse 47, it's translated as short. Remember how short my time is. Um, so that's that say that's that word chaled. Remember how swift time goes. Um, or in verse in Psalm 39, it's translated like um age. So um my age is nothing before you. It's 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 swift. It moves. So we can think of that as like, um, I I think of it. I mean, I've studied this passage before. I think of it as in terms of how we see her in this text that she pops in and she pops out, and we've not. And many of us haven't heard her name before. We've heard Josiah's name. We haven't heard hers. But that doesn't mean she's not important. But she moves fast. She comes in, she comes out of the story, but plays an essential role while she's here. And what is it to honor someone like that? Well, and her message is one where like the time of like peace or calm before the storm of Babylon is going to be short and swift. And that doesn't mean it's not meaningful or necessary. But. But maybe that's also descriptive of what's coming. I also wonder if it's, um, so I feel like when we talk about um, at where they find the people hanging out, <laughs> like there's a lot of times where I, I picture like it's this group of people that like sits around uh, waiting for people to come up and ask them questions. And it's like this group of really smart, I don't know, whether prophets or wise people. And I'm just wondering if maybe like how a role of a woman is a little different in that. And that maybe like, she's not someone that's lingering along at the gates. Maybe she's there swiftly. Like she moves more quickly. She moves more swiftly. Like, like there's (laughs) like, usually I think I reserve that for like women having to do things very subversively and like hiding and like cloaking themselves and like moving really like, slipperly like you like you have to slip in and out of things and move quietly and be unnoticed in some ways and so I kind of think of a little bit of that of like how is she having to move throughout all these things to be called a prophetess to and be a woman in the midst of this patriarchal society that's making really like in the past has made some really bad choices so to be somebody that is knowledgeable but without a lot of power mm-hmm. is might require some more s- movements that look different mm. that mimic that that swiftness or that i don't know that feel that actually feels very weaselly like mm-hmm. well it, it it relates to the our last podcast or, or a couple podcasts ago was on rebecca and how it's recent history that has judged her for deception. Whereas actually people viewed her like that, that sort of honesty at all costs is, is a privilege of those in power. 
And that that sort of knowing how to use deception in order to progress something, in order to have the story of God move forward, was was praised for most history. And and it's more women that you see being that trickster, but that that trickster is not bad. Um, that that trickster can play a really important role, just like somebody moving in and out of the story differently can play a really important role and that women had to do things differently. Yeah. I mean, the entire, like, potentially the entire positive trajectory of both the Hebrew scriptures and the Bible are people disrupting the status quo because they're willing to say the thing that's going to make people uncomfortable or they're going to do the thing that's going to make people uncomfortable. I mean, we literally follow a faith where the Messiah dies for what he's saying to the empire and to the power establishment. And yet we've established an entire system that follows rules. And if you step out of the rules in any way, shape or form, or even if you're seen as questioning those expectations, you're labeled like a heretic or a blasphemer or something. And it's like, maybe I'm just doing what like we're supposed to do, which is like ask really good questions and wrestle with this thing to figure out what it means to be human in order to serve people well, because that's kind of the history here. That's kind of the trajectory that we should be on. And and so maybe maybe weasel is like what we should put on the flag as opposed to like a lion or something. I don't know. <laughs> Well, I'm thinking about the, I can't find where the verse is. Maybe you guys know, but when Jesus says, uh, be as wise as serpents and gentle as, as sheep, doves? Yeah. sheep, doves. doves, doves or sheep. They're both pretty chill. We sacrifice. But like, we don't, we don't talk, we don't really talk about like Jesus tells us to be like serpents. Yeah. That there is a part of us that needs to have that ability to do subversive things, to operate outside of the system, to be wise, to be tricksters, to be there's something in the history of our faith that says it's not always about maintaining the status quo. It's not always about keeping the system upright. Sometimes it's about leaving the system or doing things differently or calling the system out on its problems. Well, and and not we're not going to talk about that verse in depth because we want to get back to Holda and what Holda says and the prominence of that. But for Jesus to make a reference to a serpent, knowing the history of the faith and like the story of Adam and Eve and the serpent in the garden, I mean, that is a gutsy thing <laughs> to say. Like, what are you? That is anyway. I'm gonna have to unpack that at some at a later date. I don't know. I don't know. Where... To leave it on the table. We'll leave that one on the table. <laughs> I think. Does anyone know where it is? Am I? Make, is it not? Is it a verse that's not actually in the Bible that we think is in the Bible? Oh, no. I swear. I swear. He talks about it when he's when he's sending out the disciples into, like, to go out. Matthew ten sixteen. Thank you. But is where do you actually read it for us? So we quote it correctly. I think the King James has it. Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. There we go. Thank you. I like the be ye therefore. That always brings <laughs> me back. Be ye Just therefore. flows off the tongue. <laughs> gotta say that like you're like singing it. Be ye therefore. Well, and, and I think, I don't know, maybe I think it's worth applying to this passage and looking at Hulda and saying, the Judah had wasn't operating the way it was supposed to. So the king and the high priest and the scribes are su surprised to find the Torah. That should be like a flag to us about how bad things have gotten, that the people who are in charge of guarding the Torah for the people 
didn't even know it existed. So of course, yeah. the people holding on to the story are going to have to be serpent-like or weasel-like because the power structures for a long time have lost it. I mean, let's just be clear that the people who should be most the most intimate knowledge of that book <laughs> are going to Hulda. Like that's who that that's who they're going to see. It's not like go go check and find out who's the wisest. We don't know who to go to. Like they like that is who you're going to. Hey everyone, it's Jason here, and I just wanted us to take a moment and breathe for a second and ask yourself, what stood out to me so far? What thought am I having? What's popping into my mind as we're navigating this unique story that we find in the Hebrew scriptures? And that idea of thinking critically about what we're reading and what we're hearing is what leads me to let you know that we are starting something new in this season of Searching the Sacred. After each episode is recorded, Steph, Lisa, or myself are going to be recording an afterthought. And these afterthoughts are going to be posted as videos on our Patreon account. Patreon is a site for people to support artists and creatives and podcasts and writers. And so you go to patreon.com, search Searching the Sacred, and for a dollar a month or more, you can support the work of this podcast. And if you do, you will get that video afterthought that Steph, Lisa, or myself will be recording. And we hope that in the comments of that afterthought, you'll provide some afterthoughts because we really want to hear what you think and how you're still wrestling with this passage, with this story, with this person of Hulda. So enjoy the rest of the episode, and we hope to see you on Patreon, where you can see the video for the afterthoughts. Yeah, let's look back at verse 13 that you read. So so after Josiah rents his clothes, realizes how serious this is, we have the king, we have the high priest, we have the chief scribe, all like consulting with each other. What do we do now? And the king is the one who says, which also notice that this, there's a way that this even shows that things are a little off, that the king is directing them what to do with the book of the law. The priest seems useless. The priest has no idea. The king is the one speaking up. The king says to the priest, inquire of the Lord for me, for all the people, for all of Judah, about what we do right now. So this is the command of the king to the high priest, go inquire of the Lord. What could the priest do right now? Well, technically, is that not the person who has access to the most innermost ever things? So oh. the high priest <laughs> could do what then? If we, if things are operating. He could make up whatever he wants as, as what the Lord says. Okay, that's one thing he could do. He could claim, <laughs> yes. oh, the Lord said this to me. Well, he could seek the Lord unless he's terrified of being smitten. <laughs> well, right. So the priest is the one that can go to the Holy of Holies. The priest yeah. is the one who in this moment in time could understand things in a way that says, I'm going to get a sacrifice. I'm going to go to the Holy of Holies. I'm going to sacrifice to the Lord on behalf of the people. He doesn't do that. The priest does not take this on himself. In verse 14, the high priest the chief scribe, and then Akbor and Ahikam, which I'm not quite sure who they are. They're just a part of the story somehow. They all go to Hulda. 
they have the most power to inquire of the Lord themselves, and they go to the prophetess Hulda. So if they've just got done reading the the like the law, right? So we're talking like Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. Like we're talking about like those first five books. If they just got done reading through this, they've read through all the sacrificial system. They've read through all of that and what they need to do. So you're right. They could easily just say, okay, we got to get in and do this thing. And we got to start making sacrifices and turn this thing around. But I wonder if, if the status of things is so far gone that they're like, even if we like, do we even know that there's a chance that any of this will do any good? Because it, it almost to like the point, like we'd be hypocrites to think that we could walk in and change the trajectory of things by offering a sacrifice because clearly we don't know what we're talking about. Like someone else might. Except that the story will always invite you to turn. That's true. Like the story is always inviting you to come back. So if you know the story, it, it, it you. Th- There's the other pastoral moment right there. It's always inviting you to come back. There's point number two for my three-part sermon. Thank you. <laughs> I'm so glad we can help you write that today. <laughs> so why Holda? Like what? Like let's get. To, I want to get to Holda. Yeah. Well, I I want to think too about like when is. When do you go to a king? When do you go to a priest? And when do you go to a prophet? Oh. Is also part of my question right now. Like they're choosing, a, right. they're like, this is a time for a prophet. This isn't a time okay. for a priest or a king. Also, just to be clear, like I just um, did a sermon on Elijah and the life of a prophet is not, <laughs> the thing is, is that it's not guaranteed that a prophet is ever going to tell you like, things are going to be great. Here's what you got to do. Oftentimes the prophet's like, no, like God's mad and you're getting a drought. You have done some stuff and there are some ramifications for your choices. Like prophets are like a lot of times they're bringing a message that's not like what they have to say to power is usually not great. So let's define the difference between king, priest and prophet. Like and and, and I don't mean like define in like an hour, but like define in like a couple of sentences each. Right. Like. The responsibility of a king is to protect and guard the people, to establish the realm, and to make sure that people are safe and that the kingdom continues. Right? Well, and there's still like a like kings are appointed. Like there's some appointing. There is some religious connection and responsibility for kings at this stage of the game. Deuteronomy 17 says the king is to write for himself the book of the law so that the priest and the king are in charge of holding on to that. The king in terms of letting that influence how they reign and the priest in terms of offering sacrifices on behalf of the people. Okay, so king, protection, security, some religious accountability. Priest, (laughs) right? Priest is supposed to be religiously spiritually looking out for the people interceding on their behalf the conduit between god and the people offering sacrifices we're not in the realm of like everyone can go into the holy of holies so the priesthood is a really important conduit for people to connect to god and then the prophet is kind of the outlier of this because they're not always around there's not always a prophet the prophet is in Hebrew is Navi. And so like when you, even when she's called prophetess, 
Um, the verb at the root of that is uh, navi or nava, which says to prophesy. It's one who brings. It's very related to the idea of one who of bringing forth fruit. It's that's a very similar word in Hebrew. So it's to prophesy, but which is um, it's, but it's spelled the same as bringing forth fruit, and so it's there's this idea of like a prophet is going to bring something. It's going to bring the word of God. It's going to bring, but I, the reason I bring up the bring forth fruit piece is that that relates to what Jesus talks about in the new Testament of like, know it by its fruit. No, it's by its fruit that a prophet has this. It's a different kind of word that you test the words of the prophet by what comes by, by it's not always about the future. Sometimes it's about the present. It's about bringing something in that's needed but I think the main thing that's different about a prophet is the prophet's the one outside the system. It, mm-hmm. it, the king and the priest both have a role in upholding the system of government and religion for the people. The prophet is outside of the system. So the prophet has the freedom to bring what's needed, even whether or not it supports the system or destroys the system, because it's a way of bringing God into the present tense in a way that the system is second, not first. And the king and the priest both have to prioritize the system. And it's not always, I mean, just to be fair, it's not always clear if it is a, like there's prophets of Baal. There's there's prophets, whatever God is being worshipped, there are prophets underneath there. So like, who's a true prophet, false prophet? Like that's where you get some of that. Mm-hmm. conversation of like who actually is hearing from God because I think well I know for myself I've heard a lot of people who like heard from God or said God told me and I'm like mm. and it's hard to argue with God told me except when you start evaluating the fruit exactly mm-hmm. but again back to what Lisa said to the fruits not always positive the fruits not always with it like what Hulda's gonna say is God's vengeance is coming and can't be stopped. That doesn't feel like good fruit. But it's not about whether or not the fruit is good in the context of like um like, like, like pleasing or like immediately gratifying. Like it's like a strawberry. You know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah, I can tell a bad strawberry from a good strawberry really quickly, right? It's not about that. It's about like, is this thing that we're being told? an honest and realigning thing for love and justice and grace to be present in the world? Is this thing that we're being told realigning things so that all people are able to flourish, not just some people are able to flourish? I mean, and now that's obviously me placing values, but I think they're fairly biblical values onto this. And so when Hulda gives, quote unquote, bad news, it's not bad news. It's realigning news about the honest trajectory that Judah's been on and will go on. And it's not all bad news because it's like this will this will happen, but it's just not going to happen right away. Like mm-hmm. you did the right thing. You humbled yourself. You tore your clothes. Mm-hmm. In some ways, it is that question of, I think no matter what, hearing the truth, what's true, can be good fruit, even if it's the truth is not what you hope it to be, 
or right. that it's come like I want to be careful with truth. I, I'm trying to figure out what other word, but it feels like when you're in some of those spaces, all you just want to know is like just somebody. What's what's the truth? What's coming? What what are we what are we gonna do? And it's almost like you don't actually get exactly that. The prophets aren't telling you. Here's your step by step plan to do all the things. It's always a little little more mystical than that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just, I don't, so, I feel like there have been times where there have been multiple prophets. And again, this feels like they go to, they, they name Hulda right away. They go to Hulda and that's, that's that. Which for me speaks to who Hulda is. Hmm. Like who, like who she is in the community, who she is amongst prophets, because she's not by herself. Like she can't be the only prophet running around. Like there, there's more. Right. Even to, and, and, and she says this, she basically, to summarize her message, it's the wrath of the Lord can't be kindled. Like Babylon is coming. This is happening, but it won't happen in your lifetime, Josiah, because of the way that you humbled yourself. And, and they accept that they don't fight back on that message. And then Josiah goes on to like lead a revival, like even knowing that bad is coming, Josiah still then holds on to what he can do in his lifetime. And he leads the people in Passover and he does a bunch of things that are like good, but like they don't fight back at her word. They take her word. And Lisa's point of other prophets existing at the same time, it's always helpful to read books like Kings and Chronicles side by side with other books and like piece together timelines. So if this is happening in the 18th year of Josiah's reign, Jeremiah 1 tells us that the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah in the 13th year of Josiah's reign. Jeremiah is Hilkiah's son. Hilkiah the high priest is the father of Jeremiah. Jeremiah has been a prophet for five years at this point, and he does not consult Jeremiah. His son? His son. He consults Hulda. Why does he go to Hulda when Jeremiah is available? This is also the same time period. 622 would be during it'd be um, during the time. She's kind of in between Zephaniah and Habakkuk. She's during the time of Nahum, although Nahum goes to Nineveh. So like there seems to be lots of prophets around this time period. There's God is raising up prophets, God is sending prophets. So those are only the ones written down. There's probably plenty we don't know about that are at the same time. They choose Hulda. I don't know why they chose Hulda, but we do know what Jeremiah prophesied because it's written down in the book of Jeremiah. And it's a very similar prophecy of this this is coming and it's going to be not good. And so I wonder if they already kind of knew what Jeremiah had in mind and they were like, let's go talk to someone else and hope the news is better. Um, and, and maybe the power of Hulda is that she's hearing the same thing or she's, um, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I think, no, that diminishes her for me. I prefer that she's just kick ass awesome. all by herself. Mm-hmm. I, I, yeah, I agree. What? I don't even like what I said. You can, I'll, I'll cut it out. I'll probably leave it in just for the sake of honesty. But like, 
I wish. Well, I but it but it becomes this idea of midrash that we do, right? There's a lot we don't know. There's that could that is a possibility. They could be seeking Hulda to see if, as a woman, maybe she has something gentler to say. <laughs> you know, they could be playing into all of whatever stereotypes. But then she doesn't have something gentler to say. She does echo the same message that that may or may not reduce her to be like, she has the strength to stand up just like all the other prophets are standing up. There's another way we could hold her to say, because it's listing where she lives, which is sort of an interesting piece. And it's listing that she lives close to the temple and close to um, like the, the palace. Uh, or whatever. The yeah. Pal- yeah that she actually could have been a prophet they consulted regularly that lived close because she was a prophet to the king and the priests. And that's why she lived where she was is because they knew where she lived. They go and commune with her easily. She lives in that district. She could have been a mother of the prophets. This could have been a prophetic school where she trained, she trained Jeremiah. (laughs) Maybe she was helping other prophets learn to hear the voice of the Lord. And she was the head prophet at the prophet school. And so they go consult her. Yeah, we don't know. We and, don't and know, but they know I, where she is and they know who she is and they go ask her. Yeah, and we definitely should not diminish that at all. I don't want to presume to be doing that. Um, but, but I, I, think, I don't think what ahead. you said has to diminish her. I just want to also say that because it could be. I think that speaks negatively about them more than about her. That of of course, like when we're afraid, we're going to go to the person that we think has the best message. That could be what they're doing. It's just that she doesn't have the best message. But I, I, yes. And I think what's powerful is two things. One, that clearly she is seeing and hearing from God to say what she says. That's like the most beautiful thing. The second thing goes back to what Lisa was talking about is the why are they receptive to this message and why is it so important for them to hear it? And I think it gets to that thing that that Lisa was saying about the honesty of it. We have to always remember the, the context they're in is they've watched like the northern 10 tribes get assimilated into Assyria. They are seeing all the threats around them building up and building up. They've watched king after king after king in the past did not follow the way of the Lord and it keeps getting worse. And so if they had any expectation that this was going to be a nice flowery prophet, you know, they, they were clearly mistaken. And so they're able to receive the honest truth because they are understanding the times in which they're living and they can, they can, they can discern that that's, yeah, okay, we get it. And I kind of feel like, it's similar to where we are now when if people want to talk about the church in America and they give like a real positive, like gung ho, the church is going to is making a comeback and it's going to be dynamic and, and wonderful. I kind of feel like people are like half-heartedly behind that. And they're kind of like, yay. Like, but in the back of their mind, they're like, what are you talking about? Like we all have seen the history where like, the mainline denominations are all dying off and getting older and they're not revitalizing. And at the same time, the more growing churches, if you even want to put them in that context, because they're not anymore, the evangelicals are clearly headed on a path that doesn't seem to be growing either. And they're aligned with some pretty unhealthy things um, when it comes to white supremacy and misogyny and all the other things. And so 
you know, to come along and say, I don't think the church is headed in the right direction and it's going to get worse before it gets better seems really depressing. But also to some people, it's like, finally, like, thank you for saying that because we needed to be grounded in like the truth of the moment in order to do something about the moment. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what they're able to do is they're able to be honest about the moment so they can then do something about that moment. I want, it makes me wonder if we know who the Huldas are today. Do we know whose door to go knock on to say what's happening here? Or do we, are, or are we going back to the priests and the Kings? Cause that's who we're familiar with. Are we, have we been listening to the prophets? Who are the prophets? Are we asking them? Um, are we willing for them to be in unexpected places? Like we, we approached this passage today, knowing that most people, in, including me a few years ago, didn't know who Hulda was um, because she's not Jeremiah. She's not the popular. She's not who you would expect. Are we listening to those voices that are on the margins and what they see about what's happening to God and the church and the gospel and politics and the country, like all of the things that we have questions about, are we going to the right place with those questions? It makes me think about, like, I think the, if we, if you were asked, if you had, if you asked people who are prophets, like name, name five prophets, I don't think anybody's naming women mm-hmm. in the Bible. I don't like, I, I would, I would just be surprised. And, um, and even in our, because like we talk about Jeremiah, because Jeremiah has a book of the Bible. And it just feels like there's a, there's a way that we look for, we want a prophet that has like a book, has a big, huge message and a huge plan and layout. And we want, we want this huge thing. And this is showing like, hold us barely, like she gets a couple of verses. And trajectory wise, she's like she's a she's a big deal because what she helps josiah do is the work that he thought maybe he had an inkling like maybe he had an inkling like oh we got we've got some work to do like we got to clean out all the junk we brought into the temple we've got to like we got to get this right and that might be a little scary to do because the masses of people don't want it and so i just it feels like it, that question of like who are prophets. I feel like they're they're probably the people we're least likely to see or least likely to listen to because they're probably the least polished, the least <laughs> like out front. Um, or maybe they are. Maybe they're actually the ones that are getting most quickly attacked um, in social media and whatnot and shut down and try to push out uh, so we don't hear that message. But it doesn't feel like it's the think we like to see prophets with power like we want the big show like elijah got like we want the we want god to rain down fire and burn some stuff up mm-hmm. and turns well, out it, that's not it i mean that also to me reminds me of like the the question or possible application of this of are we willing to be a hulda or do we think we need to be an Elijah? Like when we think about, like when people model, like, oh, who in the Bible do you want to be? Like we we tend to always want to be the main characters in a story with <laughs> the most powerful. We want to be Elijah on Mount Carmel. We want to be one of the 12 disciples. We want to be the Isaiah or Jeremiah with those really long books. But like most of us are more like Hulda. We're going to have a life that that is quiet in some way, but faithful. She was doing something faithful before and after this, that was a part of her hearing from God. 
And when she was called upon, she did this one thing that was super important for the trajectory of the whole story. And that was enough. Yeah. And, and that maybe that was perhaps all that the patriarchy was willing to see. She mm-hmm. perhaps did a ton of stuff, but they didn't document it because totally. <laughs> right. Right. And how many of us have that life, right? Where like there's a bunch of stuff that the patriarchy's not going to notice, that power that history won't write down. And that doesn't mean it's not important. Well, I think of the little boy who brought the fish and the loaves, right? On the feeding of the five thousand. Like we always like, you know, what does it mean to be Jesus in that story? Or what does it mean to be the disciples and distribute the food? And like, you know, what does it mean to be the little boy who like when they were like, we need to feed a bunch, a bunch of people. And he's like, well, I got a lunch. You can have that. Like, what if that's the little tipping point moment that changes the trajectory of the entire story? And because we always talk about in like the big idea of like changing systems and affecting, you know, our world and being a positive influence and, and like how it's so daunting and it's so big. Yeah. And a little boy gave his lunch and the entire narrative changed and it's one of the most famous stories ever like what if we gave our lunch you know what if what if we what if we were honest in that one moment where the people in power needed us to be ooh, ooh, ooh. what if all of us were honest in that one moment when people in power needed us to be and were open to hearing what we had to say When is that one moment, the moment that changes things? I would also say you have to be like, that's not, that's, it's a beautiful thought. And to frame that, it's also important then like Hulda had to be known mm-hmm. and had to be showing up where she like, should like, should be available <laughs> and should mm-hmm. be right in order to do the work that Hulda ended up doing here she like she had to be a part of something and so when when we're talking about um it's really hard to think of like it gets overwhelming to think about overthrowing big power structures or changing big power structures but if we opt out because it's too big it will never change anything everybody has to do a part of something to disrupt and to make sure that things aren't that lopsided part of it. And and for things outside of ourselves that aren't necessarily just about me personally, it's actually about like a community of people. And it feels like, I don't know what it's like for, I mean, it's a very interesting thing to think about like Hilkiah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it is interesting that son's a prophet, but it's also like, that temple is in complete disarray. Like in chapter 23, like if you go further, they're actually like beginning to do things. Like they're throwing out idols and they're throwing like to multiple gods that are sitting in the temple. And so, and that's under Helkiah's, there's some weight and responsibility for him in getting that message and the work that's to do and what's happened. And him being willing to do those things that probably didn't, man, that's some, you got to own some stuff. You can't, you can't just pretend like that stuff's not happening. Like mm-hmm. there's work to be done. Which maybe that, maybe even here I'm drifting towards wanting to be Hulda, but maybe I'm more like Hilkiah. Am I willing to listen to the voice of a prophet? Am I willing up 
to own up to my own failures that led things to get to this point? Am I willing to see what system I've been a part of that has led people down the wrong road? And am I willing to do the cleanup work that it takes to make a shift? Even if that shift doesn't make a difference in my lifetime, like what these guys have been told by Hulda is that in their lifetime, Babylon's not going to come, but Babylon will come. So they could all choose to give up. They could be like, well, it doesn't matter what we do. God, like, let's party until, you know, the world ends kind of thing. But they don't. And what they're doing in not in not giving up with this message is they're holding on to something for a future generation. They're learning that their lifetime is not the difference maker. Mm-hmm. No matter what they do in their lifetime, Babylon will still come. But they're choosing to turn in their lifetime so that maybe their great-grandchildren have a different story. Are we willing to do that kind of turn? That where we don't get the gratification of what we do, we do the hard work of the turn without seeing the reward of the turn. Can we be a Hilkiah? Which I think, I mean, my own personal wonderings about the state of the church and the state of politics both is about that generational mindset. How often are we stuck trying to make the turns where we see the reward of it? And are those not the turns that actually make a long run difference? Can we start to act for future generations, even if we don't see the benefit in our lifetime? Seems like one of the challenges of our day about climate change, about lots of things. Can we make a turn for them? Yeah. I, I think that's such an important question. And it's a hard one to know how to answer. It's one thing to say, yes, I want to be a part of the turn. It's another thing to say, now, what does that mean? What are the actions that come after that? Because I'm not 100 years into the future to look back and say, oh, you made the right choice. Like you did the right thing. History will judge the actions. And I think the the thing that I have to do as a local pastor is make the best choice listening to the whole does that I can as a leader and to try my hardest and do it openly in order to hopefully, yeah, hopefully we create a small little story that was trajectory changing in a, in a small way. But it's intimidating. I think I always look for places in the story where it challenges me to continue to do work that feels hard. Like in some ways it's looking for a spot that says to keep doing, keep doing hard stuff. <laughs> like, because there's part of me that sometimes looks at the big power structures and looks at things that are broken and like, what am I going to do? Like, what, what am I going to do about it? And it's mm-hmm. super hard and it's frustrating. Like none of the, I just haven't met a lot of spaces that are actually doing the really good hard work that it's not hard. It's, and oftentimes I feel like, especially, I mean, I came out of church missions. Like that was part, like that was a huge part of my, like, career for a hot minute and like 
I always was trying to find the easiest way to get people in, right? Like you create spaces that's really easy to get in and like makes it fun and enjoyable. And um, I sometimes when I think back on it, I, I wonder like, well, how much was that pointless? <laughs> because it's almost like it has to be hard to do, to, I don't know. Like I, it's a little bit of a wrestle of like, how hard does it have to be? Does it have to be hard? I think it does. I, I haven't yet seen a spot where I'm like, oh yeah, just, it'll be easy. I think sometimes I want it, like I want it to be, or some people make it look easy and I don't, maybe they don't see behind their scenes of things, but I, I think there's a lot of, um, I don't know if I want to say us or people <laughs> that are, uh, I think a lot of us are tired and fried out and there is something to be said for taking care of yourself. And there is something to be said for getting to do, getting to the work, mm -hmm. like not opting out completely. Like don't, don't opt it out completely. You don't have to pick a thing, anything and do something with that. Cause it's hard to do it once you're out, once you're completely out of everything, it's really hard to, I don't even know. Just delete this part. <laughs> I'm like, it is well, just, it's, it's like, I don't want to be like, it feels preachy and that's not, I don't want to be preachy about it. I just. But I think that what we can see in chapter 23, which we didn't read is what they do is hard, but simple. It's sort of, you don't know how to fix things. You don't know how to fix all the things, but you can do what's in front of you and they do what's in front of them. What's in front of them is they take all of the worship of Baal out of the temple. Like when we think about how bad the temple is, not only has it been rated for silver and gold in verse 23, they take out all of the worship to Baal from the temple and taking that out from the temple. That's not just removing the worship of false God. It's knowing that worship of Baal was usually about something like crop production. That's the God where if you burn the right incense at the right time, you get a good crop. So in removing that from the temple, they're also removing this sort of scarcity mindset. They're removing wealth accumulation. They're removing and in, in removing the worship of that God. And then they go around the, temp, the countryside and they pull out all those other false temples. And again, that's about removing more than worship of another God. It's removing the fear of that caused that worship of other gods is removing the power that caused the worship of the other gods. The worship of other gods isn't just about the worship of other gods. It's about why we seek it and what we're seeking it for, which is usually about wealth or power or fear. And so they're removing all of that, getting back to the basics of the temple. And then they have a Passover, which is about the act of leaving the thing that's been narrowing in order to go into the land that God shows them. Those are the two acts that they do. Does that solve everything? No. But there's a way that filters down to the core and gives future generations a core to hang on to. What was this all really for? It was about leaving Egypt and centering on a God who said, there's enough. Let's do those two things. I really love that. I think that's such a an important point to make especially in light of what lisa said because lisa I, we're not going to cut that because i think what you said is what a lot of people feel is the let's just 
let's just remove ourselves from the thing that we see as problematic, even though that thing is, and if we're talking about the church, we're talking about an institution that has helped narrate and give story and language to faith and spirituality that has shaped who we are as a people and what it means to be human. And when you remove yourself from that system, you have two options. One, spend the rest of your time pointing out all the reasons why that system was broken and wrong. And that leads to a lot of bitterness and a lot of like frustration and anger. Or you got to replace it with something else that is a reconstructed, renewed, revitalized narrative about what it means to be human and be a spiritual being. Because you're a spiritual being whether you like it or not. And you got to resolve that to some somewhere and with something. And so when people are just angry all the time or bitter all the time, that doesn't change the trajectory of anything unless you're still claiming to be a part of the thing that you want to see change. And maybe this is a local pastor who's like wishing he had more people hanging out with him. But, um, but honestly, I would, I, I mean... I know so many people who have just like said, I can't do the church thing anymore. I totally get it. I, I can't do the church thing anymore. That's why I became a pastor is because it was so hard to just show up. But I believe that yeah. this thing names are who we are. I believe it gives us place and it gives us a story and it, and it, and it orients us to a worldview that is saying there's something dynamic about being human where people can flourish and experience love and belonging and justice and grace. And I don't know where else to get that. I'm not going to get that in politics. I'm I'm not going to get that in a coffee shop. I mean, I might get that in good friendships, but I'm not going to get like the life altering spiritual nourishment from a cup of coffee sitting around a table. Like there's power in that. There's beauty in that, but there's something so much more to life than, than a, than a, a good Sunday morning brunch. I think, I mean, I, I think that's your entry point. I think that works for you. I think yeah, what I'm thinking totally does. is like, I'm, I'm really over being hurt by yep. shitty church leaders. <laughs> like I'm kind of, I'm done with that. I don't know yep. what that means yet. Like I have not worked out. Like I, it does not mean that I want my own church. I know. No, that. but you still show up. You still I, well, not to not to church on the regular. <laughs> no, I know, but I show, you are not. And, you have not given up on helping the church. Okay, hold on. Well, what's I, the no, difference I, between showing up to the story and showing up to church? Right. Yep. Yeah, different. And I would say that I actually don't know that I'm trying to help the church, and I, I'm going to say some things that make me a little nervous. But I'm going to say them, and that like this feels like the conversation of abolition. And it's the conversation that I've been like, I've been watching this and trying to learn and understand for a couple of years now. It's taking me that long to even be able to like push it out because it has such, um, I don't know, it's inflammatory language sometimes. Like when we talk about abolishing prison, abolishing police, like I'll even throw out abolishing church. The abolition movement is not about like just destroying things on the idea of there's nothing left behind it. And this is actually, it feels like part of the conversation that we've had that like some things do need to die so that other things can come forth. 
The idea of not needing prisons, I think, is one of the most compelling things I've ever heard. I would imagine a world where we don't need them and imagine a world where we don't need police. And, and most of us can't even fathom, we can't even imagine it. So like the, the idea of saying those words makes us super nervous. And But like sometimes you have to kind of sit and listen for a minute and learn and try to figure out like, what what does that mean? Because the closest thing that we understand to abolition is, is the abolishment of slavery. Most of us, I would freaking hope, would say that is a good thing to abolish. Why? Because it's about all humans. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, that's all of it. And I'm not saying that abolish the church in terms of like never have a church again. But in some ways, we actually see it with like, it's almost like the temple gets abolished. And not for lack of trying to keep it. But in some ways, that was prohibiting flourishing. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm probably treading on. T- well, what it is, <laughs> it, 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 I think it, it shows the wisdom of what does it mean for each of us to listen to Hulda's words for our generation? Mm-hmm. And the answer might be different individually. Yeah. But what she's calling us to is a sense of what is inevitable and what is not. And what is my role in helping us all go back to the core of what things were for? And Hilkiah had a different role than Josiah, had a different role than Joe Farmer in that time period. But what none of them are doing is upholding the religious system as it existed before the discovery and before Hulda's words. The temple would have been unrecognizable to everybody in that generation because they cleared out stuff that had been in there and had been the wrong stuff. So some people might interpret that as revival, some might might interpret that as abolishment, but it's a big change from where it was. It's not upholding where it was. It's saying this is the moment to do something new. This is the moment to take out what has been holding us away from the goodness and move towards each other to move towards a better story. And that's what they do, even though it's only for their lifetime. Like there's a, there's a bunch of limitations to what they do, but they still try and they still do something. So what does it look like for all of us to have the courage to do something? This has been a 40 Orchards podcast. At 40 Orchards, our mission is to create circles for all people to wrestle through biblical text so that together we can expand each other's experience of what is sacred, whole, and good. We search through the lens of sacred possibility, assuming there is more to be discovered, questioned, and applied as we listen for how God is still speaking. You can learn more about 40 Orchards and sign up for a study by going to 40, that's 40orchards.org. Our opening music is by Less FM. Our closing music is by NCR Music Vibes. Additional music is by 3Music. Any references to books or other sources can be found in the show notes of this episode. Thank you for searching the sacred.